You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Welcome back to Datages. Listeners, I'm your host, Chad Hagel, and today I'm welcoming into the interview studio, Ward Hinden. I've really been looking forward to Ward being here today because Ward and I share a lot in common. He and I have been tracking each other's careers and investments closely for several years now after we were introduced by a mutual friend and a fellow investor, Robert Volkel. As we've talked about on the podcast before, Relationships are so key in business and in life, and this is certainly no exception. I'm grateful that Rob brought us together. Ward, welcome to Datages. Thanks, Chad. It's great to be here. You know, we talked about this concept of friends, relationships, connections, and how they bleed over to business. I know Robert Volkel has, uh, Rob, to you and me, has been a good friend to both of us and an investor as well in, in my ventures, and I think in yours too. Maybe you can talk a little about how you met Rob, your relationship with Rob, and what it means to have these kinds of interpersonal networks. It's really social capital, to use sort of a clinical term for it, but it's just friendships and relationships. And Rob is such a great friend, and we've done business together and continue to do business together. We met in Venice, gosh, 2008. Very randomly, we shared the same property. His partner at the time and my wife and two kids, we literally shared the same piece of property with separate houses. So we got to know each other very quickly, very well, and have stayed connected ever since then. I've been to Rob's house in Venice before. I'm picturing right now you two guys just bumping into one another in the front yard as you're exiting the property. Quite the community there in Venice Beach. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, just back to this idea of critical part of careers and just, I think, life satisfaction is developing and maintaining friendships. And that's certainly how we've met. And you can see how it just sort of grows from there. It's really kind of fun to watch. Most definitely. It's a beautiful part of life. You know, as I talk about on the podcast, I've thrown out the window completely, the notion of work-life balance, because I think work and life are just part of one giant tapestry of your life and how you live it. If I could just add one thing there, I think about this a lot. I feel so fortunate to have found a place in my career where work doesn't feel like work. It's all one picture. And I have to work hard to create boundaries with an active family life and trying to stay healthy. But it's a great place to be. And I tell my students this a lot, and we'll talk more about my teaching in a minute. But if you can find that place in life where your career just it feels like your life. It's just play and work. It's all sort of intertwined. That's a great place to be. Very wise words, Professor. We'll certainly come back to your teaching and the educational environment. 
Our core topic today is based on what I've referred to in the companion episode of Datages as for-profit philanthropy. Just as I've done in my life, Ward, your professional life has really successfully straddled the fence between the nonprofit world and higher education in particular and the for-profit world. Can you share more detail with our listeners about your overall career path as an attorney, an investor, and an educator now, what you're doing today in the private sector and in higher ed, and what that overall path has been like for you to get to here? Yeah, I'd love to. It's sort of a long, circuitous path that if you had asked me 20 years ago, could you imagine you'd end up where you are? I would say there's just no way, just not possible. I come from a small town in Western North Carolina called Asheville, which is, it's sort of a popular place these days. It's an incredible, progressive, small town in the South with a lot of microbreweries and great restaurants. Now, when I was coming along, it was a pretty quiet place, but it was a great place to grow up. And I grew up in a family of lawyers. My dad was a lawyer. My great-grandfather was a lawyer. So that was really my destiny. That's all I thought about as a child, was coming back home and taking the baton from my father, who took it from his grandfather. So I never questioned that. I was a good little soldier. I did everything right. I went to college and law school in North Carolina, did well enough to get a federal clerkship out of law school, then went to work for a big, established white shoe law firm in Atlanta, did that for two years, and I just hit a wall. And I was 29, 30 years old. And I just looked around and thought, my gosh, I've done everything right. This is just not working. I couldn't see myself taking the next step and going back home and learning under sort of the hand of my father who shares my name. He's deceased 10 years ago, but he was big ward and I was little ward. And that had its own dynamics. And particularly in a small Southern town, me coming back and learning under his sort of guidance, which in a lot of ways would have been incredible. But I think it would also have been very difficult to sort of find my way in that sort of small pond. Yeah, it sounds like under his guidance, but also in his shadow, if he's big and you're little. Exactly. And that little ward thing would have been, you know, I probably would have never shaken that. And that wasn't the main sort of stumbling block. For me, it was more sort of practical and existential. You know, I reached this point where I I realized, gosh, this is somebody else's story. This law thing really was this ancestral thing that I just took for granted. And so when I finally saw myself and found myself in this law firm in Atlanta practicing, I realized what a a difficult road that was going to be from a practical professional standpoint. I was the cartoon character, junior associate, working in a windowless conference room in Detroit, Michigan, sifting through crash files, responding to discovery from plaintiff's lawyers, trying to keep bad documents out. When people got burned up in a car crash, the plaintiffs rightfully would sue the car manufacturer. And we represented car manufacturers. So I did that for a year and that was brutal. It definitely doesn't sound glorious. It doesn't sound like what they would put on the brochure for why to go to law school. No. I had the sort of courage to at least raise my hand and say, look, this is not working. Can I try corporate law? So then I was put on the M&A team and did M&A transactions 
working for large insurance companies. And that was equally soul-sucking. But what was great about that experience was it gave me a window into the business model of big law and how this incredible, enduring and profitable business model had worked and continues to work. But it also revealed some cracks in that foundation that I was able to take to helping start a business that really tried to disrupt that business model. So it sounds like you really learned how the system works, but how it didn't really work for you. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't work for a lot of clients and didn't work for a lot of lawyers. A lot of lawyers were like me who did everything right and got to that point of getting the great job. And then just sort of dawning on you that this is really, this is tough. And it's um, the awakening that a lot of young lawyers get that, wow, is this what it's all about? Is pretty stark because you've invested so much to get there. So rather than just bail altogether from the profession, I moved to New York and joined a team that founded Axiom Law, which grew into the global leader in tech-enabled legal services. And there's some sort of keywords in there, but essentially it was a giant law firm that wasn't a law firm that worked for corporate law departments and really helped to bring a more rational cost structure and a more rational way of practice for lawyers to have a more sane life practicing law. And this thing grew into a you know, global business over 17, 18 years. We can get into some of the sort of learnings and what I got out of that experience. Perhaps you can, just for those of our listeners who don't understand big law, when you say that it's a different way, a different approach that Axiom adopted, maybe you can just give some highlights, a comparison and contrast versus your traditional law firm. Yeah, so, so a traditional law firm is built on a partnership pyramid revenue sharing model. And this model was pioneered by a guy named Paul Cravath in the early 20th century. One of the best firms or most well-known firms in the world is Cravath, Swain & Moore. It's the gold standard. And his business model basically was to have a handful of partners at the very top, leveraging at the bottom of the pyramid all these associates. And it's a highly profitable model when you're a partner and you've got 50 associates working under you. Leveraging slash slave driving, I imagine. Some of that. The trade-off or the rationale is, as a young associate, you get trained, and you do. These law firms are incredible laboratories for teaching professional excellence. You know, you put your suit on, and you show up to work every day. You're never going to miss work in a place like that. That's a high bar. I am so grateful to have lived through that and had that experience and tried to do my best in that environment and realizing that was not sort of an environment for me. I have to tell you a funny story. I was in Atlanta, Georgia, working for this really prestigious white shoe law firm. I had to leave the office on a Friday kind of early to go to the bank and deposit something before the bank closed. So I leave my office and I forgot to put my jacket on. And I go downstairs to the bank office. I'm waiting in line without my suit jacket on. And a senior partner in my group comes up behind me and, and says, Ward, where's your jacket? 
Now, you understand that a man in this law firm doesn't take his jacket off. And I just sort of swallowed hard. <laughs> I didn't know how to respond, but that sort of, I realized what sort of culture I was in. And you know, that's how tight the guardrails are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have a reputation to uphold. Well, congratulations on being a survivor. And, <laughs> and so the new generation of firm that you established at Axiom, what were the key differences? Well, we basically provided a platform and environment for lawyers to come and practice at the same sort of level of practice sophistication as they were practicing either in-house or in law firms. But we would give them ultimate self-determination. And they would say to us, well, we'd like to work on this kind of deal or for this kind of client or this many hours a week, this many days a week. So it's this really interesting sort of flexible model that was kind of unheard of in a client service industry that prides itself on billing, you know, you're going to bill 2,500 hours a year and that's your quota. And that's sort of table stakes for being here. So we created a much more self-deterministic, flexible model. And then we got into more sophisticated sort of large scale, high volume corporate transactional work using more technology. And that became more of a big machine. That's when we really grew and opened up offices and internationally and had these centers of excellence in India, Belfast and Poland. So it got pretty complicated. So we brought in a lot more sort of professional managers to help sort of scale that business. And most importantly, what about the dress code? (laughs) Yeah, that was uh, obliterated. That was disrupted along with a lot of other things that we built. I imagine today you'd probably have to reach pretty deep in your closet to even find a suit. You know, I do. Every time that we're invited to a wedding, I sort of had this quiet panic. Oh, my gosh, what am I going to wear to the wedding? (laughs) So moving beyond law into the rest of your career, maybe you can tell us about those transitions and, and where that led you. There was a big kind of pivot point or awakening when I was in San Francisco. We started Axiom in New York. I eventually moved to San Francisco to run our office there. While I was there, my wife and I lived there for two years. We lived in Larkspur, a little town in Marin County. And I would take the ferry in every day to downtown San Francisco. And I'd take it back at night. It was a really cool experience. And one thing that I started to see, I mean, literally see, to the east of the bay and north of the bay was this giant medieval fortress that was populated by a bunch of men in blue jumpsuits. And I just got curious. And I realized that that was San Quentin Prison, right there in the north part of the bay. Something inside of me just kind of stirred a little bit. And I got curious about what goes on in there. And if there's any way that I could possibly help out, volunteer, I wasn't sure what that looked like, but I was just curious. So One thing led to another, and I found this program that delivered a junior college degree to prisoners at San Quentin. And so I signed up, and I didn't know what I was going to teach. But because I had this legal background, and I was a poli-sci major at Chapel Hill, American government was something that needed to be taught. So I went through this training, which was literally half a day on a weekend, and the training was more about how to handle a hostage-taking situation 
than how to articulate separation of powers in the federalist system of American government. And I did it. I showed up. I'll never forget that first day. I show up at the gates of San Quentin, and I'm working on Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings. I go to the guard gate, and it's this dude out of central casting, shaved head, wraparound, sunglasses, bull neck. And I say, hey, I'm Ward Hendon. I'm here to teach. And the first thing he said was, you know about our no hostage taking policy, right? I've learned a bit about that. What do you mean? He said, well, if you get taken hostage, we don't negotiate for your release. Good luck. (laughs) Okay. We'll see how this goes. So I get ushered in through four or five different gates and guard rooms and whatnot. And I get to this prison yard. I mean, this is the first day I was there. I was definitely, my heart was beating. In the back of the prison yard is this little trailer, a little mobile home trailer with a line of guys out one side of it in blue jumpsuits. The guard takes me in to the classroom and says, wait here. About a minute later, these guys start filing in. Turns out it's 20 men ages 18 to 80. We all just stare at each other. I didn't know what to say. And this one guy, dreadlocks, looks at me and says, man, you ain't just white, you white, white. And everybody erupted in laughter. I was the only white guy in the room. And from then on, we sort of had this sort of understanding (laughs) that we could laugh about our differences. Those two years in that classroom really changed me for the better. Your breaking down barriers story came from teaching civics to convicts. Yeah. Yeah. It, It helped me to develop just a deep empathy for how people with different lives actually experience our constitution, our government, our bill of rights. I learned all this stuff in textbooks and law school and read these cases that were, yeah, there were real people there, but what I experienced was these real lived experiences of the fourth amendment prohibition against unreasonable search and seizure. And these guys, a lot of them did not have effective counsel when it came for their you know, trial and they were away for life. So whether it was the Fourth Amendment or the Sixth Amendment or the Eighth Amendment against, you know, prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment, all these things just kind of came to life for me. And I realized that we can't take these things for granted. People live under the sort of protections of our system. And a lot of it depends, you know, how protected you are. A lot depends on where you come from. Absolutely. Obviously, your student who astutely pointed out that you're whiter than white, you know, we sitting here as white males, probably without an experience such as you had on the front lines, can't really appreciate how those laws and those protections are distributed unfairly and how much disparity there is in the way that the Constitution is applied. That's right. I sort of brought in this axiom that talent is evenly distributed in this world but opportunity most certainly is not. I mean, there was more entrepreneurial talent inside those classrooms at San Quentin than I would find if I walked onto Stanford or UCLA's business school campuses. The opportunities, just when you come from the families that they came from, they just weren't there. Yeah. And I'm assuming that even though you've been enlightened in that way, 
the barriers are so great that it's not like you today as a venture capitalist, when you're looking at building companies and establishing management teams, I'm sure you're still recruiting from Stanford Business School and not from San Quentin. That is true. Although we have really made a commitment to cast as wide a net as we possibly can. And we can talk more about that, how that plays out practically. But this is a real systemic challenge in the entrepreneurial early stage ecosystem, both from the business builders, founder side, and the venture capital allocator side is how do we create more diversity in this ecosystem? It's hard, but it's changing. I think there are a lot of great things happening that's helping to change that. So why don't we talk about that transition you made into venture capital and help our listeners who may not be as familiar with the venture capital universe understand what that even really means at its essence. What does it mean to be a VC and what does that consist of and how did you get into that? Yeah, so I got into it a couple of years ago. We ended up selling our business, Axiom, and had a successful exit. I took time to really figure out what I was going to do, and I continued teaching when we moved to Los Angeles after a couple of years in San Francisco. I joined with this group called Defy Ventures, which teaches hard and soft skills of entrepreneurship inside of prisons in California. So I got another sort of taste of that inmate experience teaching a different set of skills. And these were skills that these men were going to take when they got out of prison and build plumbing businesses or uh, food trucks, right? It's the hard and soft skills of business building. And that sort of gave me this sense of, wow, business can be a real force for good in people's lives. I started doing some angel investing and ended up working with a few people, one of whom is my now partner, Mike Lynn, who's based in San Francisco. And another person came on, Gabby Derbyshire, who's based in Los Angeles. And the three of us over the past year have stood up a venture firm called Dangerous Ventures. In the early stage investing, it's sort of the higher risk stuff, sits venture capital, which is you know, capital provided from limited partners that runs through a venture capital firm. And our job is to steward that capital and find thesis-aligned investment opportunities to invest that capital into and hopefully generate a return for our limited partners. And that thesis is what guides us. And we invest in a thesis to back companies building a more resilient future for people and planet. So we do a lot of you know climate change, energy, food systems, a lot of human adaptation. So science-based well-being, mental health. It's a pretty broad remit at this stage. We're early days. We really just launched officially the first part of this year. We're still getting our sea legs under us, but super excited about where we sort of sit and how we are hopefully going to be part of the solution and helping stand up companies that are solving really hard systems level problems that we need to solve to have any chance of mitigating the worst effects of climate change. It's such a wonderful statement. You've talked to me about the notion you mentioned a minute ago about business as a force for good. And it's clear that that's not just lip service or a catchphrase, but that you guys are really focused on 
supporting businesses that really matter and they're really making a positive impact on the world and choosing to deliberately focus on impact investing. Can you talk about when you're evaluating a company, how you make that determination of whether it fits within your thesis and what really makes an impact investment in your mind? Yeah, this is a great topic and you'll get a lot of different viewpoints on this. What constitutes impact? What is impact? I actually teach this at UCLA Business School now. After I left teaching inmates, I moved over to UCLA Business School where I teach impact investing to first years and an entrepreneurship class to second years. Broadly speaking, ESG is sort of the public markets equivalent of impact investing in the private markets. And in impact investing, we're looking for a risk-adjusted return and some positive societal or environmental benefit. And so a risk-adjusted return means if we're taking a lot of risk, if we're super early with a company, which is what venture capital is, then you want a measure of return that rewards you or potentially rewards you for that risk. You need sort of a a lot of upside potential to justify that risk. And there's this interesting law that applies to early stage and venture capital called the power law. That basically means that in any given portfolio of investments, and we'll make 30-ish investments out of our first fund, out of those, there might only be two or three that are just outstanding successes. Then we'll have 10 or 12 that are kind of okay, did okay, and the rest will be failures. And that's sort of the way you build a venture portfolio and you're looking for a handful of outsized performers. And it's no different, I mean, impact investing, if done for a financial return and these other things, you're looking for the same thing. Now, there's this notion of a capital stack, this continuum of capital that a business might consume over the course of its lifetime. And in some of the earliest stages of business formation, particularly in climate and real capital-intensive industries, there will be concessionary capital or catalytic capital that comes from foundations or wealthy individuals who just want to help absorb some of that early risk of some new you know, solid-state battery technology that's so risky that a sort of more traditional venture investor is not equipped to take on yet. But once some of that risk is taken off the table and we're moving more towards what's called product-to-market fit, then the traditional venture can get involved. And it's a really quite a, a remarkable variety of different capital sources. And even in the IRA, the new Inflation Reduction Act, that has really been an incredible boon to climate tech and hopefully for the climate eventually, there's a massive loan program from the Department of Energy that is also part of that early effort to soak up a lot of the higher risk stuff before it gets into the venture sort of system. So it sounds like what you're really doing is when you look at that traditional balance of risk versus return and looking for those companies that are going to knock it out of the park economically, it seems like you're in your impact investing model willing to maybe take on even a greater risk on a financial perspective or perhaps a lower financial return 
if you can measure the impact returns in terms of sustainability, societal impact, human impact, to go alongside of the financial returns of your investment. Is that an accurate assessment? It is accurate for some investors, but we are a returns first investor. We don't think we have to trade off any return for a measurable societal or environmental benefit. And I go back to 20 years ago, Al Gore and David Blood starting generation management, and they sort of led the charge in data-driven validation that you don't have to trade off. You can get a risk-adjusted financial return and do these other things. So they had this whole sort of integrated models of how this works in public markets and growth equity. We're sort of earlier we're pre-seed and seed. Growth is later stage. But we don't think you have to make that trade-off. And you know we'll prove that out in our thesis. I tell my students this in my class, you really have to have a business that works. And then you can measure these other things. If you start by measuring these other things or prioritize these other things initially, you might not have a business in a year. Fundamentals first, and then the ESG, as you talked about, environmental, social, and governance impacts have to be a bonus on top of that. Yeah, that's right. And it's good to know that those companies are evolving. In my sector, in real estate, we're kind of on the back end. Real estate is looked at as, unfortunately, probably one of the least innovative sectors in the economy. It's bricks and mortar. It's as traditional as you get. But at the same time, especially when you look across the pond to Europe, ESG is becoming more and more of a consideration, particularly the sustainability component. But I always talk about true sustainability, which to me is green and green, meaning it's green good for the environment and green good for your wallet. If you can't build a business model that has a profit-driven return to it, you're not going to succeed in having a true impact on the world. I totally agree. And Maybe that's the realm of nonprofit organizations. And I know you've got some strong viewpoints on that. Let's sort of call out the elephant in the room for a second, which is ESG is under assault. And I think it's a really interesting debate to have, and we should be having it. I view ESG and impact as sort of the, we're at the front end of a movement, This notion of woke capitalism, to me, it's missing the point. To me, it's being able to invest with your values and find values-aligned investment opportunities. How many years did you just throw money in an IRA or 401k and had no choice in the matter? And now you do have choice. There are some great companies out there, and we look at a lot of these, that you know their software allows you to really slice different values-aligned investing. And ESG is sort of a negative screen. I don't want you know, fossil fuels. I don't want crypto or I don't want cannabis, whatever it is. Impact is more proactive directly investing in private companies. You know, the sort of activism that's afoot is consumer activism and employee activism and shareholder activism. I think it's healthy for a democracy, for a country because out of activism comes change. And we know we need change in a lot of these areas. Where we work in climate and human resilience, there's a lot of opportunity for change, a lot of need for change. Yeah. And in a uh, 
capitalist economy, the way that you speak is with your wallet and where your money goes drives the decision-making at the highest level in terms of the priorities and what happens within our economy. Yeah. It's still market-driven. We still seek the market returns. And I do not view this as socialism. And I think Milton Friedman might disagree with that, but I do think it's a healthy debate. We're really going to have it as the presidential election cycle eats up. I encourage all of us to engage on that and form our own opinions. Probably one of the few healthy debates that will be part of the next presidential election cycle. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you're probably right. Well, let's move from sort of a global perspective down to your own personal perspective. And Ward, I sometimes joke about how many buckets I bring to the Data Just podcast. I've said in the past that I should be a volunteer fireman at this point. You've shared with me that you have some buckets too, three buckets to be exact, in the way that you break down your personal objectives for your professional life. Dump your buckets on us, Ward. I think about the work that I do professionally in three buckets. One is talent. The second is capital allocation. And the third is community. In the talent bucket, I have this personal mission to train up as many of these ambitious capitalist warriors that I can from business school and get as many of them into the entrepreneurial ecosystem to start companies they're going to be impactful, that are going to help people or help the planet. And I feel very strongly about that. I now live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, after leaving L.A. two and a half years ago. And I still deal with the travel because I feel passionate about opening these students' eyes to the potential of business as a force for good. That's sort of talent. And we also work closely with founders and founding teams in our portfolio. And we feel very strongly about talent development. We have an internship program in our firm that we call the Talent Lab that brings students from the Door School for Sustainability at Stanford and from UCLA Anderson to learn about venture. We just have a great group of students. Yeah, never stop teaching, never stop learning. That's a great point. That's another reason why I love teaching so much is that I get to stay on a steep learning curve. I tell my kids, you know, and my students, when you're on a steep learning curve, that's how you grow. Yeah, I think if I only did my own job every day, I'd get really bored because I'd completely stop learning anything. I mean, there's incremental learnings because in my world, every project is a little different than the last and every project has something new to learn, just as I'm sure it is with you and evaluating new companies all the time. But it's so great to be around an educational environment and to be exposed to things that are so far afield from what you do day to day, that it really challenges you in terms of your mental capacity to think about things in a new and different way. Absolutely. And it's funny because I thought that that was going to be a hook for me to stay in law. If I was a litigator, every time you get a new set of facts or a new litigation to manage, you have to be an expert in those facts and that litigation. And there's a little bit of that there. But nothing like in the entrepreneurial world where you're really, and particularly in investing, where you just have so many interesting opportunities from just, you can't even imagine the variety of things that we see. Space, energy, food systems, precision ag, well-being. It's just all this stuff is just keeps it so fresh and alive. But to bring it back to 
the buckets after talent is capital and capital allocation. Using capital to start these businesses and support entrepreneurs through the growth, hopefully, up the curve of their businesses. And that's just been a, a home run of stimulation and, and relationship building and staying on a steep learning curve. It's that sort of work doesn't feel like work scenario. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And particularly in this environment where you have alternative investments, which you're in, but in venture specifically right now, you have crazy things happening with crypto, FTX, and now with Silicon Valley Bank imploding just last Friday, it's a lot to take in. In an environment, in a macroeconomic environment where people are already pretty skittish about risk, we're playing in a very risky part of the portfolio. And hopefully our investors have a diversified portfolio and venture is a piece of that. It is a very challenging environment. However, early stage business creation and entrepreneurialism, that's the backbone of our country. It's never going to go away. I couldn't be more excited about where we are positioned as a firm and as an industry. And it's just going to be a cyclical thing like capitalism is, right? The last bucket is sort of community, which is something that I hope to spend a lot more time in as I mature our firm and have more time to dedicate here. But I have this idea that is really in response to climate change and how communities can deal with it. Certainly my experience, and maybe yours has been this way too, Chad, but I feel like climate change is this sort of esoteric kind of fiction thing out there that doesn't really affect me, or at least there's nothing I can do about it. Well, it does affect us. In New Mexico, we have crazy wildfires happening now. Drought's a huge issue. Food scarcity is a big issue. It's only going to get more severe. So what I would love to work towards at some point, and I've been making some initial sort of formations of what this is going to look like, but creating this template for communities to ground themselves in things they can actually do among various stakeholders who have an interest in climate change, municipal government, state government, capital allocators like me, entrepreneurs in northern New Mexico, indigenous cultures, academia. We've got some amazing think tanks, the Santa Fe Institute. If you ever want a feast, an intellectual feast, check out the Santa Fe Institute. They are an institute built on the complex adaptive systems theory and applying that to these very hard problems of poverty and climate and a bunch of other stuff. It grew out of the Manhattan Project, which is you know a whole other history. The idea would be to bring people together and really help local communities find what are the grassroots things they can be doing to help mitigate the worst effects of climate change. We have all these silos going on right now in Santa Fe, and it's no different than anywhere else, but what could bring them together and create a template for local activism and roll that out to other communities and crowdsource a lot of great ideas that are happening to help mitigate climate change. That's sort of a high level of three things I think about. I probably spend 15% of my time in teaching and 90% of my time or 75% of my time in capital allocation and the rest just thinking about future stuff like 2051, this community idea. I find it a very thoughtful and 
meaningful framework in terms of how you're evaluating the breakdown of the priorities in your professional life. And I really appreciate you sharing it with me and sharing it with our listeners as well. I'd like to go back a little bit and talk more about the talent development piece, your bucket number one. We here at Datages focus a lot on generational transfer of knowledge, getting wisdom from our elders to the next generation. And clearly that's what you're doing is sharing your experience with the next generation of folks at UCLA Anderson Business School. And I'm really curious if you can share with us some more about what you're teaching and maybe some perspectives regarding the students that you're encountering and what that experience is like and what it is that you really hope that you can impart upon them as a teacher. Yeah, that's a great question. Great set of questions. I don't reflect on this quite enough, but you know, the overwhelming thing I'm trying to accomplish is just inspiring students to think about their careers broadly and think about how they can be part of the solution, not just work the path that is they think is laid out for them to go to Goldman Sachs or McKinsey. Great institutions. I did that too. I went to work for a prestigious law firm in the Southeast and got amazing training. You can still do that. And maybe within those places, think about impact. This reminds me of a story, a high school teacher of mine, a 10th grade, just had an incredible impact on me in directing me towards a life of curiosity. And what he did was, I was taking a Russian history class of his at Asheville High School. His name was Charles Weichel. After a couple of weeks in that class, he pulled me aside and said, Ward, things aren't going too well, are they? I said, well, I, I, I'm not quite seeing it that way. I felt like it was okay. What's wrong? <laughs> he said, there's sort of a fork here in the road. And you're on one of these forks. I just don't think it's going to end well for you. But there's this other way to go. And let me tell you about what that looks like. He said, I want you to be more curious because I think if you're curious, you will engage the world in a whole different way. And here's what I'm going to do to help you develop more curiosity. Here's a list of books, world history books. And if you read books on this list and come to me after school, I will give you extra credit. And I was just hungry for extra credit. I didn't really understand what all these books were going to do for me, but I devoured that list. I read every single book on that list. There are probably 25 books on that list. And he gave me extra credit for each one. And we developed this relationship after school that he just began to impart more wisdom on me. I took the other fork in the road and, you know, I'm a crazy reader now. My shelves are full of books. Every time a new book comes in the mail from Amazon or Thrift Books, my wife rolls her eyes. I can thank Mr. Weichel for that. That was a piece of inspiration that has stayed with me to this day. And in fact, it was so meaningful to me that I pulled together with a bunch of his former students and we sort of capitalized a scholarship fund, the Charles Weichel Scholarship Fund that gives a graduating senior from Asheville High School several thousand bucks to go to college. That's kind of cool. He's now retired. He's in his 80s living in, in Asheville still. You know, I try to look for those opportunities to inspire my students in, in little ways. And hope that you can be somebody else's Mr. Weichel. That's right. That's exactly right. I do teach impact investing and entrepreneurship, but 
I really try to be there to help my students with their careers because they're at this real pivotal moment where there's nothing like an MBA program to create some space in a career and just allow students to dream a little bit. And so I try to fill that vacuum with ideas and inspirations about ways they can take their careers. There was a great YouTube video of Bill Gurley, who's a partner at Benchmark Capital, one of the more well-known and accomplished early-stage venture investors. And he taped an appearance at a class, I think at University of Texas Business School, where he went to business school. His speech was running down a dream and just telling students how to think about their careers. And he just has these building blocks that are just brilliant. I've used a lot of those for my students to just help them realize that you know, you might as well find a career that you're passionate about. If you're not passionate about it, you're not going to do the work on a Sunday that's going to set up your week to be successful. You're not going to just crush it if you're not passionate about it. How many times in our careers have we felt like this is just not me? And the last thing I want to do is pull up a book on a weekend and study up on X, Y, or Z, right? Yeah, there's really no way to manufacture the level of motivation that it takes to be truly successful. It's got to be innate in what you're doing. It does. And if you become obsessive about learning, then it just opens up doors. And now we have these incredible tools like LinkedIn, like Twitter. I'm confining my sort of observation to professional development here. I realize there's a lot of noise about particularly about Twitter. But where else can you send a direct message to a guy like Bill Gurley and get a response if he chooses to? And same in LinkedIn. It's an incredible resource for finding mentors, learning you know, new things, finding experts. I really try to push my students to be obsessive about their learning. And back to our comment about Rob Vocal, this idea of social capital is really important. And I did not appreciate this earlier in my career. I was not a natural networker. And now it's absolutely critical to the success of our business as being networkers. And networkers, it's not a bad word. It's just continuing to build that network. There was, a, I think, a LinkedIn study in 2016. I'm remembering back from Bill's talk, actually, that 85% of jobs get filled through networking. That's a big number. So I tell my students, you know, really look around. What's in this classroom is the greatest asset you'll take from two years at business school. So really be mindful of that and go to the whatever social events and join the clubs because that's we didn't have that in law school. Law school is just it's not about that. I think in business school, you're right. It's fundamentally about having that reset moment being able to completely reset, reframe, and elevate your network and the relationships that you have just as much, if not more than what you might learn in those couple of years that you're there. Definitely. And those networks will just multiply exponentially if you engage and always be attuned to where people are and who shares your values. There's another thing I talk a lot about is, you know, in impact investing, it's values investing. And in thinking about a career, finding people who share your values is critical. It's more important than I think 
in a lot of cases than whatever company you work for. It's finding those people who share your values. And something else I talk a lot about, and I say this to my kids too, it's be kind and pay it forward. Have a pay it forward attitude where you're not living in this scarcity model where eat what you kill. Think about helping other people and being kind. So I tell my students, my door is always open to questions or, you know, relationships that they need to make that are in my network. So I think that pay it forward attitude of just being helpful is critically important to one's career and to the larger success of families in in our country. We've seemed to have lost that sort of kindness gene. The political world doesn't seem very kind these days. Maybe it never was supposed to be kind, but I like to think of it as potentially being kind. And certainly in the professional realms that I work in, paying it forward, being kind is an important thing. And I imagine at the Anderson School at UCLA, the majority of these students that are graduating are going on to work in the for-profit environment versus not-for-profit. But it sounds like you are giving them a mindset and some of the tools to think about how they can change the world in a positive way going forward in their careers in the for-profit sector. Yeah, I'd like to see the data on that. How many students from top business schools or business schools in general are going into the for-profit versus not-for-profit realms. I suspect it's probably 90 plus percent in the for-profit. And that might be a reflection of the costs associated with going to business school. I mean, the costs of education are like healthcare in this country. It's just skyrocketed. Yeah, it'd be really tough for most not-for-profit organizations to be able to bring in an executive post a stint at Anderson and be able to offer them any kind of market rate compensation to come into their organization. Yeah, that'd be tough. And that's part of the systemic sort of imbalance that we have in business schools that forces most students to go into the highest paying jobs they can get. That's a systemic issue. The last thing I'll say, I speak about this the same way to my students as I do my children. Having an emergent strategy is oftentimes the best strategy. And by that, I mean, you can't possibly try to predict every step in your career. You can't possibly try to predict every step in your life. Just be open and let it emerge. You know, have some guardrails on defined by your values and what excites you, but don't feel so much pressure to figure it all out right now. Let it emerge, let it breathe and be open to the possibilities. And it really speaks to that emergent approach that you're talking about. Focus not so many steps ahead that you actually handicap yourself in making decisions, but plan for the next few steps ahead and then let the dots connect themselves from there. Yeah. And this reminds me of something that my wife and I joke about, but it really is, I'd say it's probably reached the realm of being a Hendon family value, which is just say yes. And how many times do you catch yourself just saying, no, I can't do that. Or no, I'm too tired to go to that sort of networking event or that party. We're often reminding each other, you know what, let's just say yes. And I think that's a good thing for kids and for all of us to at least check in. A lot of us have sort of a, a natural tendency to say no, but saying yes just opens you up to the possibilities, which are vast. 
It's great perspective. And let's come back to the for-profit versus not-for-profit realm. In the podcast episode, I spoke about what I had seen in my career and my nonprofit career as the limitations that I witnessed and what can be achieved or how efficiently things can be accomplished in the not-for-profit realm. And how at this point in my life, I'm really making this shift that we've discussed into for-profit philanthropy. Have you seen these same challenges or limitations I've talked about in your experience in the not-for-profit space? My experience in the not-for-profit space is limited to one stint as a board member of a, an organization called Sierra Nevada Journeys in Reno. And this organization basically took kids from the city of Reno and other sort of urban environments to this ranch in Portola, California, across the border and gave them experiential learning opportunities. Really awesome hypothesis that taking kids out of their natural environment and challenging them and teaching them chemistry and biology in these environments could really unlock some learning. I don't have a ton of experience beyond that. I'm just a big believer in the engine of capitalism and the profit motive, not for the mercenary sake of making money, but as a motivator for a lot of great things and a reward system that rewards real value that the market determines, not some schedule of payments or you know whatever. I'm just a big believer in the market shaping opportunities and basically telling you what works and what doesn't work for a lot of the problems we want to solve. The environment's a great example where having the private sector deeply involved in pushing for change is really the only institution in the mix, whether it's not profits, not for profits, governments, academia. The private sector is, I believe, the only institution in that mix that can do things in the timescales we need to solve or at least mitigate the worst effects of climate change. We can't rely on the UN or the IPCC or whatever governmental body to do things quickly enough, much less our own government, although the IRA is a great example of things coming together unexpectedly and delightfully. But we need the speed of the private sector to close those gaps with as many experiments as we can run, which is where I want all my students to come into and start companies, right? That speed and scale that John Doerr talks about in a great book called Speed and Scale, one of the best books on the intersection of climate change and technology and private enterprise I've read in the past couple of years. But we need that speed and that ability to scale that only for-profit private enterprises can bring to the table to, again, I think, avert the worst effects of climate change and maybe solve some of the some of those as well. Hopefully, hopefully. That's the goal. Yeah. You've obviously, as you've shared, just a small tip of the iceberg here with us today, Ward. You've acquired a lot of knowledge in your life through your experiences and engagement with all of the influences that you've talked about. I want to go back a little bit now and rewind all the way back to what you shared with us before about your origin story. You have told me leading up to this interview that every now and then you go back to your hometown. 
you've talked about your father being this towering figure. I think you told me before he was like a small town Atticus Finch. Are you now Big Ward? When you go back to your town, have you earned the right to be Big Ward? <laughs> wow. No way. No way. I get a little emotional even thinking about these conversations because I just held my father in such high regard and still do. And I don't really aspire to be Big Ward. He sort of has that. I get to be my own man and make up my own story outside of that. It's a, a work in progress, but I'm doing that in a different part of the country in a different profession. But what connects me to him is just this understanding the importance of being a role model to your children. And you don't have to stand on a soapbox and spew wisdom and try to solve everybody's problems all the time. You can live a life of integrity and be your own person and lead by example. And that's really what I try to do. You know, I have to, I have to laugh. My great grandmother, Carrie Sue Ward, who was my father's grandmother, had the greatest bit of parenting wisdom that I've ever heard. When I tell you this, you're just going to, you're probably going to laugh, but I think there's something really powerful in simplicity parenting. And I try to emulate that with different ways of parenting in a simple way. And so her thing was, and this is, again, a woman of the South who was born in 1890, and she had two daughters. And her husband was a guy named George Hahn Ward, who I was named after. And he was sort of the big lawyer in town in the early 20th century, the big railroad lawyer. So his wife, Carrie Sue, was asked at one point, how do you do it? How do you raise these daughters? And she said, honey, two things. I trust in the Lord and I keep their bowels clear. (laughs) (laughs) And so we can still aspire to that in our own ways with social media. Maybe she would substitute in social media and trying to protect our kids from that. But I always think about that and there are so many ways to go about parenting and to get twisted around the axle with 8,000 books on parenting and 8,000 experts. But I think what it comes down to is something very simple. And we all have our own sort of elements of that simplicity in our families. And she showed me how there's, there's one way to do it, right? Do what's right and cut out the crap. <laughs> That's right. So it sounds like, at least in the eyes of your children, you've certainly earned the right to be big ward in your household. You know, when it comes to being a father yourself today, do you find yourself emulating what you saw in your own father, or have you chosen a different approach in how you parent your own children these days? Yes, definitely emulating and modeling, but also realizing that the way I was parented doesn't necessarily work for this generation of children and more importantly, where each of my children are. So one thing I try to do is not be as top down and sort of autocratic and hear the rules and we're all going to adhere to these or you're out. 
there was some of that in my childhood. And that was sort of the product of, I think, where my parents came from and how they parented. I had a wonderful childhood. And there was a lot of sort of top-down, very paternal. To apply management theory, it's sort of theory X versus theory Y of family management. Yeah. And so I try to be more bottoms up, talk more, talk more about how we're feeling. And I have to credit my wife, Clara, with helping hold the mirror up for me and say, hey, this actually feels like big ward. Let's come at it from a different angle. So we'll do things like have a family council where we sit around the table and talk about our feelings. That wouldn't have happened in my household as a child. Yeah, I don't get the sense Big Ward has a family council. Now, I will say that there's room for that and there is room for real parenting that sometimes has to come from the top down. I really try to join forces with my wife so it's less of the paternalistic thing coming down and more of the parent unit. You know, I see a lot of parents sort of neglecting parenting because they're afraid of isolating their kids or alienating their kids. And I think that's actually not a good thing, but get the ratio right of the parenting versus the bottoms up stuff. Yeah. Balance is the key for sure. When it comes to good parenting, aside from passing along the wisdom of your great grandmother, is there sort of a go-to piece of parenting advice that you find yourself sharing with your children that you'd like to share with us? When I think about the sort of bedrock parenting lessons, I get back to some of the things I've said earlier around the world will reward you for being curious, keeping an open mind, being kind. These are pretty simple things, but the kindness thing gets lost in the shuffle when you have three kids ages eight to 15 that are living their lives. I feel like that's a word we use a lot in our household is just being kind. The four agreements is something I think about a lot too, just back to sort of basic elements of being impeccable with your word and don't make assumptions and always do your best and don't take things personally. Some of those things are a little elevated for an eight-year-old, but always do your best and how you do anything is how you do everything. And I have to remind myself of that a lot of times as well. I feel like I spend a lot of time thinking about parenting, trying to be the role model and not always succeeding and having to have some reminders and a wife, a very conscious wife who can remind me to, hey, lose the big word thing. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, keeping their bowels clean, right? <laughs> that too. Ward, one of the great traditions, if you can call it that, that we have here on Dadages is giving our guests an opportunity to share a really bad dad joke. So I'm hoping that you have one on board for us that you can share today for our listeners. I do have one on board. And as luck would have it, it came in last night in my son, George, who's a 12-year-old boy. We were at our in-law's house. And I mentioned that I was going to be on a podcast. And it just sort of came up that there was this dad joke thing. And my son threw one out that I thought was pretty good that I'll share with you. He said, why should you take an extra pair of socks with you when you play golf? Because you might get a hole in one. One of the classics for sure. And so awesome that you got it from your son. One of the things that we talk about all the time at Dadages is if you're not learning from your children, you're just simply not paying close enough attention. Amen. 
On that note, Ward, this has been a great visit with you. I've learned a lot from spending time with you, and I know that our listeners have as well. It means so much that you take time out of your busy schedule and everything that is part of your life to share your life with us. I thank you so much for coming on Datages and being a part of our friends and family here. Thank you, Chad. It's been a lot of fun. Until I talk to you next, take care. And listeners, remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages.com and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.